0: You can support the Double Loop Podcast by contributing at patreon.com slash double loop podcast. Thank you to our supporters and we hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Quick little trivia here, Glenn. Uh, I think I even mentioned it to you, spoiled it for you uh, when we were talking earlier uh, this week, but found out that the world's largest rose bush is down in Tombstone, Arizona, uh, home of the OK Corral and I'm your Huckleberry and, and all sorts of good things of the Old West.
1: But hey, uh, you know, I, I and I, I am surprised by that because if you had asked me flat, where do you right. think the world's largest rose bush is, I would have said either Japan or China. Just just because right. of the sheer magnitude of things in Asia, I would have guessed. <laughs> I just I just would have guessed, you know.
0: There. And I, I mean, I think I would have guessed like France or something, just because of the the long time period of you know some of the castles there. Just to give it the time. I mean, not that China Japan doesn't have the um that time period as well but I, I don't know i guess i associate roses more in that part of the world but um uh, yeah tombstone arizona it's a, this rose bush is at least 130 years old uh, it's it's all the branches are held up with uh you know, like as a canopies on on trestles because it's grown so big so um normal rose bush trunk like what inch inch and a half diameter yeah this rose bush the trunk has a 12 foot diameter and That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's immense. And uh, it shades, because again, it's up on trestles, it shades an area of 8,000 square feet. And I'm like, good lord. I mean, I have a couple of rose bushes in my front yard, right? And they grow pretty well here in Arizona. Also surprising. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they're... I just can't imagine them growing to the to that size and then basically shading my house and like three of my neighbors you know it that's it, just crazy
1: that's that's incredible hey and I'm gonna offer a little bit of trivia you probably have heard this but maybe if you haven't or listeners haven't but yeah. you you said you said something that sparked uh, a, a recent memory you talked about the doc holiday uh, I'm your huckleberry thing <laughs> you just made an allusion to that yeah tombstone. I, yeah, if the movie right, the movie Tombstone, and if anyone has seen that, you know Val Kilmer does this great performance of Doc Holliday. Doc Holliday is this amazing, you know, real life character, but you right. know, it's, it's Hollywoodized. But throughout the movie, you know, he's got that phrase, "I'm your Huc- I'm your Huckleberry." There is a theory that I'd never heard before, but apparently the um, on a coffin, the the handles of a coffin are called huckles. And so someone who actually was a pallbearer was actually a hucklebearer. And they think that he might have actually been saying, I'm your hucklebearer. But because of his accent, they thought he was saying huckleberry. But he's basically saying, I'm your pallbearer. I'm going to put you in the ground, which I think is
0: pretty amazing. And going, going along on that one... One of the things I had heard about Doc Halday was one of the reasons he went down to Arizona was because he he had a, a condition or um mm-hmm. I'm blinking out on some sort of disease where where he, you know, he thought he was going to die and yeah he had uh, a em- and right. uh the tuberculosis right. I read some other theories this is a long time ago, so maybe this has been you know reversed since then but that uh, one of the reasons he was so you know like cold blooded was because he thought he was going to die soon. So you know what does it matter? Right. But yep. that there's there's another theory that he didn't actually have tuberculosis. Oh um, really? He, he'd gone moved all the way down to the end of bottom of Arizona and been so cold blooded when he just could have been staying back east somewhere. So. Huh. Anyway, enough enough um, riddles and riddles and trivia and trivia uh, before we, we take up the whole hour with that. We've got a guest on the line. we got to get to him
1: yeah i know i'm very excited about this and a uh, little little background here so i uh, maybe what it now was two years ago eric i think we did uh, an episode on the dandridge case the elton dandridge case which was this case out of alabama there was uh, i think two erroneous identifications in the case it was a pretty serious case and you and i did an episode but we had only heard about it through the the basic you know through the community right. we had received some court documents i think you had done a little bit of digging to try to get some some other background information but you know we did we did what we usually do we just look at whatever court documents and whatever's out there that we can you know make some termination did an episode and in fact we had a couple of responses from folks who knew a little bit more about the case and said hey guys you know there's there's more information this there's another side to the story and you know we yeah, and, and me personally said, well, no, I, maybe I said a couple of things I probably shouldn't have without all the info, but I just went off of what we had and what court documents we had. And right. uh, certainly apologized to any listeners that we might have offended that knew more about the case or if we had said something that, you know, had upset someone. Uh, and then it really all came together for me because maybe a year after that or so, I was at the I, IAI. And uh, there was a presentation that was being put on by RSNA by Matt Marvin, Matthew Marvin, and he was presenting the Dandridge case and and RSNA's Brown Smith and Associates involvement in the case is they were hired as a consultancy to examine the images and and offer some opinions and do some work on it and after watching the presentation and getting the whole background on the case and seeing matt's presentation which was amazing and all the images were presented and you get the whole story you go okay all right now i see what we're missing and all the little details and the the fine the finer points of it and then it started to really make sense Plus, Eric, um, I know that they—you you had a chance to look at the images. They shared the images as well with the community—the original images. That's fantastic, and, and, and yeah, which is great. So. Even now, having had the opportunity myself to go through and annotate the images, do an analysis, work things up, and and really get in and do a deep dive on it, gives me a very different perspective on the case, as well as uh, the potential errors that were made in the case. So I'm really excited that we have Matt Marvin here today to present on it, talk about their involvement, talk about the case and all that. And uh, with that, let's welcome our guest. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hi. How are you guys? Doing great. great. Doing great. We're glad to have you on the show. Does that sound like a fair assessment of things to date so far, Matt?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think, I think you had it all lined out very well. All right, great. Well,
1: why don't we start off with our basics of, Matt, how did you get in the business? How long have <laughs> you been a fingerprint <laughs> examiner? Where did you
2: start off? Sure. So I have a Bachelor of Science degree in biology. I have a, a minuscule amount of graduate work in biochemistry. I got hired by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation about six months out of college, worked for them for a total of 10 years. Uh, after I started working for them, I was hired just as the evidence custodian. Uh, make sure you don't lose evidence, and as long as you don't lose evidence, you done <laughs> your job well. And uh, I got promoted uh, my first day, and I thought, this is great. I'm going to be director by the end of the week. <laughs> and that didn't, that didn't happen, but I got promoted up to working in DNA. And I worked in DNA for a year
0: before I I got the
2: phone call. uh Before Mm -hmm. My full-time job was to do extractions, break open the cells, pull out the DNA, wash away the the organelles and the cytoplasm and everything that inhibits amplification. And I did that for a year before I got a phone call into the office that I had been replaced by a robot. (laughs) And they offered to train me in anything else I wanted to do. Uh, And I had taken a couple classes in Leighton Prince, and I really enjoyed it. So I chose to work in Leighton Prince and trained for a little over two years, took my certification test, uh, passed it the first time, and I've been working cases ever since. As I said before, I was with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation for 10 years. When I left, I was the technical leader for the state of Colorado for Leighton Prince footwear and tire tracks. And then uh, after 10 years, Ron was wanting to become accredited, and as I'm sure most of the listeners are aware, if you want to be an accredited laboratory, you have to have a technical manager. So Ron was in the market for a technical manager, and they recruited me down here to Mississippi, and I moved down here to work for Ron, Sight Unseen, and I've uh, <laughs> been here for a little over five years now.
1: Yeah, that's that's cool, um, and just uh, a couple of things. Just back, backtrack. Uh, so Matt and I have known each other for a while. There are two things about Matt that I, I I'll share. One one sort of one not. Uh, so I first met Matt in Jersey, and was that like two thousand six, maybe? Yeah, probably somewhere around there. I probably uh,
2: a little bit before. Well, maybe two thousand six, maybe two thousand five. I'd have to look and see for sure. Yeah.
1: That was my first time uh, teaching a class in Jersey, and that was Matt's first time taking a class in Jersey. And I will say, wow, that was quite the class. the uh, The Jersey the Jersey students are are really something else. I, I'm not worried about talking smack about them right now because I'm sure they're not listening. But uh, boy, that really was an amazing class. You have to uh, you have to appreciate that uh, they're they're a lot like cannibals. They will eat outsiders first, and then. <laughs> Once all the outsiders are chewed up, they will eat their own. We had a lot of characters in the class, for sure. Yes, we did. And then the other thing was that was the class for the first and only time I ever said something. I changed some material on the fly. Uh, I had there, you know, one of the, the the most famous palm print clues is that the bottom crease, the, you know, the in your palm, the bottom crease tends to end on the. Thumb side or just above the carpal delta. I'm sure you're both familiar with this clue. Uh, In that class, for some reason, I had said always ends on the thumb (laughs) side or above. And Matt was the first person to raise their hand very quickly and go, "Uh, not in my palm. It ends in the hypothenar. And sure enough, looked at Matt's palm and he's got his bottom crease ending in his hypothenar. I gotta get. I, we gotta get an image of that. We gotta put an image just, of that on. Just on light. one.
2: Just on one. I have some palm prints I can send you. I think you've asked for them before, and I need to actually send them to you. this time.
1: Yeah. No. It's it's really cool. And I I from from that class on, I always now say tends to end on the thumb side. <laughs> I all I, right.
0: I love how uh you know again with all the interviews we've done uh of of latent print experts, we have yet another unique story. Of of uh, the path into the the world of latent prints, um, it is rarely. I won't say never because I just you know learned that lesson from you just now, but uh, rarely that you get the the same path into this uh, into this field. Right. So
1: now that you're working for RSNA and you're doing cases down there and work down there, uh, you happen to get involved in this Dandridge case. Do you want to walk us through a little bit uh, about how you guys got involved and then ultimately the the details of the case?
2: Sure. So we first heard about this case when we had two attorneys from the Equal Justice Initiative come over to our office, and they met with our laboratory director. Our laboratory director is John Bird. They came over in April of 2014. And uh, the attorneys, just to let you know a little bit about them, Carla Crowder was the lead attorney on the case. Uh, she was a graduate of the University of Alabama School of Law. And then Rachel Judge was the other attorney, and uh, she works. Uh, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School. Uh, and this particular agency, the Equal Justice Initiative has a—they're a, a pretty big agency. They have close to 70 staff members, and they employ a large number of Harvard Law School graduates. So they're very—they're a very reputable, a very um, uh, intelligent group of individuals. So they had flagged this case, and the only evidence that was linking Mr. Dandridge in 2014 to the case. Was the Alabama Bureau of Investigations' prior identification of two latent prints to uh, Beniah Dandridge. And his name was Benaya Alton Dandridge. He preferred to go by Alton. Uh, so during this conversation, I'll refer to him as Alton quite a few times. So Alton Dandridge uh, had been identified to two bloody prints that were located above the head of the victim on a uh, piece of drywall. Now, to tell you a little bit about the case, on December 18th of 1994, there was a, a gentleman, Riley Manning, Sr. He was 71 years old at the time. And his son, Riley Manning, Jr., had gotten a phone call to come over and check on his father for a welfare check. And Riley Manning, when, when Riley Manning, Jr. got there, he found that his father had been murdered in his residence. In fact, he had been struck several times in the head with a cast-iron skillet. And when I say he was mm-hmm. struck in the head several times with a cast-iron skillet, uh, this cast iron skillet, if you've ever held one, this uh, the skillet is actually in three pieces. You have the handle, and then you have a little bit of the the curvature around the pan. The base is completely separate from that piece and then the last uh, half of the the ring that makes the edge of the pan is completely separate from the other two pieces. So this this cast-iron skillet is in three separate pieces at the crime scene. So he was struck in the head several times with that cast-iron skillet, and then he was dragged while he was being strangled with a belt uh, from the living room to the bathroom, and he died in the bathroom.
1: And, and just to clarify, the skillet was from the home, right? So, is a weapon true. of opportunity one of one of these disorganized sort of murders, as opposed to the killer bringing a weapon specifically? So, likely a murder of opportunity.
0: Good
2: lord! There was a little bit of a relationship between Riley Manning Sr. and the guy who's vic- eventually convicted of the crime and is the is the confessed uh, murderer. His name is David Sutis, and. Uh, Siddith, uh and Riley Manning Sr. had a past relationship. Siddeth was kind of a transient individual, he had a hard time keeping a job and Riley Manning Sr. owned a construction company. So he had tried to let uh, David Siddeth do some work for him over a period of time until there were some concerns about some uh, theft that David Siddeth may have taken some things from Riley Manning Sr. and then Riley Manning or David Siddeth kind of left the area. And then he came back again, but he came back because Riley Manning Sr. had pursued uh, some legal action against David Sudeth. Um Their relationship was to the point of, at, at a period of time they were actually uh, David Suddeth was living with Riley Manning Sr. Uh, but Riley Manning Sr. was kind of known for having some cash on hand uh, as part of his construction company. Yeah. Okay. So. The son, Riley Manning, Jr., goes over to check on his father. He finds that his father is deceased, and the apartment has been ransacked, and Mr. Manning, Sr.'s truck and his checkbook and several hundred dollars in cash were missing. So Dangeridge, eventually, well, he initially gets looked at because he had worked for Riley Manning, Sr. So, again, Riley Manning, Sr. had this construction company. Right. in Dangeridge, he was a painter, and so he would occasionally do jobs for Mr. Manning. And shortly after the murder, uh, Mr. Dangers had been seen at the bar with a large amount of cash, so that was the first kind of clue some Some people had tipped off the police department that they had seen him with quite a bit of cash so the police after the crime scene and and it's really pretty decent crime scene work i mean we have a we have a uh, crime scene video. We're looking at a 1994 homicide, and we have a video of the crime. scene. <laughs> wow. uh, when we look at these these prints that are above the the head of the victim on the drywall, they cut out the section of drywall, and so we really see some pretty decent crime scene work. And so they, uh, the Montgomery Police Department, which is the jurisdiction that this occurred in, they cut out the section of drywall and they submitted it to the Alabama. Bureau of Investigation to compare Mr. Dandridge's prints to these patent prints in blood that were on this cutout section of drywall from the crime scene. So Alton Dandridge was arrested December 20th in 1994 in connection with this murder. And the basis for his arrest was ABI's identification of Mr. Dandridge's left index and left middle fingers to two of these bloody impressions that are on the wall, the drywall that was cut out above the victim's head.
1: The piece of drywall that was sent to ABI, did they do additional processing on it? I mean, The images I have are black and white so I can't tell if there was anything like amido black or kumasi blue that would have been you know, common at the time for processing
2: Right, right. We actually do have a copy of the latent print worksheet from the Alabama Bureau of Investigation and it has a header and it shows that they did process it both with an and with powder Okay Powder Okay yeah, I uh, can it, see it.
0: Um, I mean, for the rest of the drywall, not, co- not, not covered in blood, right. but yeah, right,
2: okay,
1: right. If, if the hydron was used for the blood first, and then powder on the rest
2: of the drywall for latent work. And, uh, understood. You know, we we really don't know, um, and unfortunately, the examiner who did this is deceased now, and the mm-hmm. reviewing examiners uh, were are. are Retired. So all the examiners who originally worked this at the Alabama Bureau of Investigation are either either deceased or retired at right. the same time. Yeah. So we don't we don't really know. Ah, uh, this would not be the first time I had heard of somebody using powder on a bloody impression to try to develop additional details. That,
1: that is true. I have uh, i seen that as well. And and we are talking about nineteen ninety four, ninety five or so when accreditation is really just starting. It's it's kind of amazing that they even had that level of documentation as it is. True, <laughs>
2: true. Right. And so this is yeah, this is a nineteen ninety four homicide. But you're right. It's it's toward the. Uh, the end of the year there. So it, it does carry on, and the investigation carries on into 1995. So then the case went to trial, and Mr. Dandridge was convicted of murder on March 13, 1996, and he was sentenced to life in prison.
0: From our previous discussion, uh, when Glenn and I recorded you know, the, the last time we talked about this case, uh, in the trial, there was a uh, retired FBI examiner that came in to testify as well?
2: Well, there's there's a couple of defense experts that are brought in at um, two different times, and okay. we didn't know about these initially. We found out about the experts uh, after the fact. There is when we received our initial evidence, we received some photographs of the latent prints and uh, some photographs of Mr. Dangeridge's prints, and in part of that, we received a memo that was written by the then uh, unit uh, section supervisor for Leighton Prince. His name was Fulton Prevost. And there was a letter from him to Mr. Dandridge's uh, counsel that describes that the prints on the drywall had faded and degraded to the point that they were no longer Suitable to be rephotographed, and therefore cannot be provided to their second expert. And so we had some indication on our initial examinations that we had at least two experts for the defense that had looked at this. And it wasn't until after we reported, uh, gave our verbal report of the exclusions to the attorneys at the uh, at the Equal Justice Initiative, that we found out a little bit more about the private examiners. So. Um, that after we gave the verbal results of the exclusions that uh, they actually were not identifications, but they're exclusions to Mr. Dangeridge, they brought over two big cardboard boxes of all the case files that they had, and they gave us an opportunity after we we gave our results to dig through those boxes, and we found quite a bit more information by digging through those boxes. The sure. first examiner to answer your question uh, was hired by Danger. He had twenty-three and a half years of experience. He had three and a half years as a fingerprint technician with the FBI, uh, but then he was also an examiner at the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for twenty years. Okay, he testified in excess of three hundred fifty times. Uh, three hundred fifty um, times. 350 times. He described there being three patent prints on the wall, which we're getting a little bit out of order on the story, but when we dug through these boxes of case documents, we actually found uh, three. There's actually three prints on this uh, piece of wallboard, not just the two, but he described that third print being not of value. And he initially reported his results to the defense, which his results were that he agreed with the ABI's identification of Mr. Dandridge's left index and left middle.
0: Oh, okay. But then
2: he ends up testifying for the prosecution when it goes to trial. So when they're at trial, they ask this examiner, this first uh, defense expert, uh, how long it took him to do the comparison. He says it took him about 15 to 20 minutes. And to give you a contrast on that, just to make the exclusion decision, and I was the, I was the primary examiner on this. I'm the reporting examiner. This was my case, but certainly we, at RSA, we have a, a large number of, of board certified latent print examiners, and so we, uh, we do discuss and, and get help and consultation from our other examiners. So to give you some kind of an idea to contrast that with, the first expert who said they were Mr. Dangeridge's prints said he did the comparisons in about 15 to 20 minutes. It took us 160 hours of combined analyst time to to uh, get to that point that we were rendering a verbal conclusion of exclusion on those prints to Mr. Dangeridge's attorneys.
1: That's that's actually I mean that's really important. You said 160 combined man hours on that.
2: Yeah, uh, analyst time alone, not even uh, support staff. Right. Yeah. So 160 hours of combined analyst time.
1: Yes. Yeah, because I can tell you, Matt. You know, when I went through and just doing an analysis on on you know, uh, well I did analysis on each of them, it took me probably just an hour on each, just and just for the analysis part to mark up and trace ridges and go through them and and that's going pretty quickly i mean without an investment on in this without having to write a report or have to you know know that my reputation is on the line this is just <laughs> me going through for fun they're, they're very complex i mean they're very complex prints
2: right and i would agree with that it certainly for me it was not a 15 to 20 minute process by any means
1: yeah, and, and again, I didn't even get to the comparison phase yet. I just, the analysis on each one. Not just the analysis. Yeah, that's, I, that's crazy. I disagree
0: with it. Yeah. But there, I, there was a second, so maybe that's the one I heard of, is the, the second one was the the main FBI examiner that disagreed with the conclusion?
2: Well, yes. So they got the Mr. Dandridge's uh, attorneys, and he himself got the answer from the first attorney. And you can imagine if you're Mr. Dandridge, you're just floored by this. No sense that these are your prints because you know they're not your prints, and so he hired a second, uh, second private examiner. This. The second private examiner was a retired FBI latent print supervisor. He had 33 years of experience with the FBI. He had an additional 10 years of experience as a private consultant. So he had a total of 43 years of experience. He was certified by the IAI as a latent print examiner. He was a member of the Alabama and Mississippi divisions of the IAI, um, And so he goes to court, and he testifies at the trial that the prints were not made by Bainbridge. And I pulled up uh, uh, some information here on the case, and and I can read you exactly what he said at trial. So the second defense attorney, when he's asked about how long did it take him to do this comparison, he says, I've looked at them a long time. I don't know, more so than I normally do. I looked at them quite a bit, which for me, having worked this case, that's, how I felt about this <laughs> as well. I don't, yeah. I don't typically have the opportunity to spend 160 hours on the exclusion of, of two prints, um, but here we had that opportunity. <laughs> Unfortunately, the second defense expert was treated so poorly at trial and around trial uh, that he never worked a private case again as the result of the treatment that he received and the question wow. may come to mind well how how do you know that well after we had come to the conclusion that he had um, that this examiner had actually gotten it right Ron tried to reach out to him to let him know that he had the answer right and unfortunately he's he's in his 80s and he's suffering from dementia and so Ron was able to talk to his son his uh, this the son his father had talked with him about this case, the examiner had talked with his son about the case yeah and and so he knew about it. he knew that, that he had been treated very, poor, very poorly by the prosecution during the course of this trial and also in the times around the trial. Uh, to the point that he never worked a private case again. So his son was certainly familiar with it and he said he would tell his father but that he didn't think his father would probably understand at this point in time.
1: And and was it just the prosecution or was it other members of the IAI and other fingerprint examiners as someone who gets in, you know and maybe you've experienced this now yourself as someone who does a lot of private case work I am amazed when I run into fellow fingerprint examiners who immediately bring up the, uh, so now you do defense work and now you're, you've turned to the dark side. There is this real perception and the stigma nowadays, and this, that's nowadays. I can't imagine back then, you know, 20 some years ago, uh, what, you know, what it might have been like back then. Do you know where he was getting the, uh, the cold shoulder, if you will?
2: I don't know if he was getting a cold shoulder from the industry by any means, but he certainly was being treated poorly by the prosecution. Now, I've read the entire by this point in time, I've read the entire court transcripts uh, for the testimony, and certainly multiple times for the testimony as it relates to the latent prints. And what we see is that um, that he was certainly treated poorly during the trial. But there's some anecdotal information that the attorneys uh, had that at one point in time he was actually referred to the prosecution by a, a prostitute. He was he was called a prostitute. Right. A prostitute. Exactly. Right. So there's um, there's definitely some some cold shoulder treatment from the prosecution. Enough so that that after 43 years of experience, I'm sure he just said, "Well, that's that might be yes. enough."
0: Yep. Fair. Wow. I, I, um, and then. As far as you can tell, this wasn't kind of brought up to the IAI or um, you know, any any of the other organizations that he was a member of uh, at the time?
2: No. So you can imagine that this stands as an identification uh, by the Alabama Bureau of Investigation all right. the way until we look at this, and we don't get it until 2014. And so by this time, what we have is... Uh, the Alabama Bureau of Investigation does currently employ uh, certified latent print examiners. We had an opportunity to send the uh, our examination results to the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, and when we did that, we we had already found the correct identification. And we uh, offered to them that as a professional courtesy, if they wanted, if they agreed with our conclusions and they wanted to issue the first report, that we would let them uh, issue that first report. So two weeks, uh, we also had permission to send them all of our examination documentation. So all of our um, images, all of our annotated images, all of our notes, everything that they wanted, we provided to them. And uh, when we did that, we found out that they actually had never had the, the prints of the correct identification. They never had those in their file. And they also never had a photograph showing that third latent print on that drywall. So it wasn't until, until we provided those documents to them that they had them. And then two weeks after we gave them to them, they called us back and said that they did agree with our conclusions and that they would like the opportunity to issue the first report. And so from um, a legal standpoint, that makes things much more simple on uh on uh, getting justice for Mr. Dandridge because right. if this is truly an incorrect identification and it's not just uh Matt Marvin says versus A B I says. It's uh <laughs> Matt Marvin says and A B. I also says and A B. I would like to say it first and we're happy for them to say it first. Yeah. Then uh then for um any subsequent filings and releases from prison that have to happen for Mr. Dandridge, that becomes much more simplified.
1: Mm-hmm. So let, let's take it from there too then. So once you know they issue this report that an error was made, I mean I imagine even before that report went out, the prosec- prosecutor had to be notified and there had to be some court dealings to revisit this. I, I don't actually know how – how th- what that legal process is to say, hey, we think we might have convicted the wrong guy on this. How, how, do you know how that works?
2: Yeah. So, in the state of Alabama, there's a few legal processes. So, from the legal side, and the attorneys could certainly say this better than I could, but um, uh, my general understanding from the legal side, and let's start from the beginning. So, Mr. Danger is convicted of the crime in the state of Alabama you are not uh, allowed, you don't have a legal right to an attorney after you're convicted of a crime. Right. So Mr. Dandridge, uh has a ninth grade education, and so he said he spent his first couple few years in the law library at the, at the prison that he was in, just reading and reading. So he's got a little bit of assistance from one of his attorneys, but he's really trying to handle the appeals process. Um, Largely on his own. Again, he does have some assistance with an attorney. So he he files his appeals and he goes through the hierarchy of the court appeals. Now that you, when you do an appeals process, you have to start at the lowest level court and then you can go to the next highest level and the next highest level. And in his initial conviction, Mr. Dangeridge is. Uh, convicted not only on the fingerprints, but there's also a jailhouse informant uh, that lied on the stand, and so that's used against him. And then, uh, and that was the
0: the guy that was originally eventually also convicted, or the the actual confessed uh, killer. Is that right?
2: So so the guy who is actually the killer and the confessed killer is David Sutis, and uh, so he initially had said that Dangeridge was not involved in the crime at all. And, uh, in fact, when he was interviewed by the Montgomery Police Department after he was captured, um, because he became a suspect pretty early on, the Montgomery Police Department interviewed him. And uh, I actually have an excerpt from their police report here that I'll just read real quick. It says, uh, David Soudeth could not explain why Mr. Alton Dandridge's prints were obtained inside the apartment and which were bloody. David Sudef stated to this detective that he never met the white male identified as Beniah Alton Dandridge. He stated that he would love to say that Alton did this offense as he watched, but that he couldn't do that. He stated that he committed this offense, that he killed Riley Manning using the iron skillet and the leather belt, and that no other individuals were inside the residence at this time. So then, Mr. Sudef and Mr. Dandridge are both in front of the court, for initial appearances. And you can imagine these prints are now identified to Mr. Dangeridge, so he's not getting out of an initial appearance. There's bloody prints above right. the, the victim's head that are identified by the state lab to Mr. Dangeridge. So now we see Dangeridge and Sidduth both before the court for initial appearances. And the judge asked David Suda, who is the confessed killer again, if he knew why he was there, and he said that he did know why he was there. But then he refers to Mr. Dandridge, and his direct quote is, I do not understand what he's doing here. He did not have anything to do, it, to do with it. So then... After the fact, Mr. Dandridge's attorney runs into Mr. Siddith at the jail and told Mr. Siddith that Dandridge had nothing to do with the case and that he was going to be released. And we don't have any more details on that on exactly how that confrontation went place or took place, but that something about that confrontation made Mr. Siddith mad, and Siddith changed his story. So then he reached out to the Montgomery Police Department and told them that Dandridge committed the crime along with Siddith. Now, wow. to the credit of Mr. Dandridge's attorneys, when they go for trial, Suddath invokes his Fifth Amendment rights, so he doesn't testify at trial. So the defense attorneys get the judge, who was who is presiding over these initial appearances, they get her to go and testify at Dandridge's trial regarding Suddath making this statement. Um, but even though, Suddath took his Fifth Amendment right at Dandridge's trial, the prosecution still used his existence, uh, certainly in closing arguments in front of the jury, and made a, a strong case to the jury that Mr. Suddath, who was kind of a small gentleman, couldn't possibly have committed this crime alone. He would have had to have the help of Mr. Dandridge, who was a... Um, Described as being six feet tall and two hundred fifty-eight pounds. So, Mister Sudith was described as being about one hundred forty
1: pounds. I actually never heard that before. And why wouldn't they just use transcripts?
2: I yeah. Don't okay. Know. Right. That, right. That's yeah. A, that's a legal question that's <laughs> beyond sure. my knowledge. Right. right. I mean, so,
1: if, if they were made on the record, uh, why not just introduce the transcripts from the record? That, 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 that's fascinating. I've never heard that.
2: So you now we need to circle back around to your previous question, though, which was this appeals process. So Mr. Dandridge files all of his appeals. He exhausts all of his appeals. And so uh, what happens then in most jurisdictions is there has to be some new evidence that's presented that allows you to go back in front of the court. So Suddath had said that Dandridge had committed the crime along with him. There was also a jailhouse informant. Now, both of these people have recanted, and so Dandridge files an appeal And he loses all of his appeals, even though those two statements were recanted, because his his fingerprints have been identified on this wall board above the victim's head. So he actually loses, and you see this consistently throughout his appeals at all levels. He is consistently denied because the overwhelming preponderance of his guilt is the basis of these identifications of these two bloody fingerprints on the wall board above the victim's head. And so he loses all of his appeals. So by the time it gets to us in 2014, we have really no right to go back in front of the court. The only way you can go back in front of the court if you've exhausted all of your appeals is this new evidence argument. And so uh, what's been allowed in a lot of states around the country is not only the argument of new evidence, but also new technology. We see a lot of cases going back in front of the court, not because evidence all of a sudden appeared, but because, for example, DNA analysis was not available at the time, and so some of these cases can go back in front of the courts and get uh, relooked at because there's new technology. So if you read some of the the court filings on this, you'll see some filings that talk about that not only the digital imaging enhancement techniques that we used on these images, um, but also some of the research, uh, in fact, some of your research, Glenn, that uh, really kind of came to light as the result of your going around the country and teaching on the topics such as pattern forced areas
0: Mm -hmm. and,
2: uh, and also some of the things that you mentioned in your doctoral thesis. So if you look at the prints and you look at the points that are marked up between the latent and the known print by the Alabama Bureau of Investigation on what they refer to as latent number two, you see that the, the vast majority of the features, and they say they have nine, are all in the Delta area yeah. of the print. Yep. And yeah. so that that has also been an argument that that's been somewhat successful in courts around the country is, Okay, not only new evidence, but also new technology, but then also a new state of knowledge. So we didn't know necessarily, and and while there may have been some knowledge in the European groups, it really wasn't something that was being widely discussed until Gwen, until you started taking some of that European information um from the I I'm gonna say this wrong, I E E F G Very good. Number two you bring it you bring it to the United States and uh, you travel the country teaching it, and you, you talk about it extensively in your doctoral thesis. And so when we look at filing specifically on this case, the attorneys had a lot of reading because I sent them your entire doctoral thesis so I, said, <laughs> you need to look at
1: I feel bad for them
2: <laughs> no don't 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 feel bad for them, but I'm sure it took them some time so So they actually cited your doctoral thesis and some of the court filings talking about these pattern forced areas and then nine hmm. features in this delta area. We know to give that a different amount of weight maybe than they did no sure. to do back in nineteen ninety four yeah. I mean,
1: you, you, you raise a really good point there that, I mean, my experience with examiners who were trained or had a philosophy from the 90s and early 2000s and how we even heard it. You, I, I, I don't know if you recall this, but I remember very clearly hearing it in that Jersey class that you, you had attended was that even examiners then said, Eight is sufficient for an identification. It really doesn't matter where those eight are. If you have eight features, that's unique enough to make an identification. That was the underlying view for a lot of examiners. That eight eight's enough, and it doesn't matter where they are. Right, and that's early
2: to mid two thousands. So let's go back to right. early to mid nineties, a decade earlier. Right. Where do we sit with the knowledge regarding the, the uh, value that should be assigned to those features in those common areas? Um, and we know now that they should be decreased. So sure. that's part of the argument that allowed them to get this back in front of the court. Yeah, and
1: one other thing, too, I would just I wanted to compliment is having looked at the original images that you guys provided and then the images that you were working off of, you were so right in saying that the digital technology has improved because, man, I have to say you guys did a fantastic job. I don't know who did the digital work on that, but you guys really did a, a great job on making them as presentable as possible from <laughs> from really difficult images to work with. You guys did a great job on that.
2: Well, thank you. I did that, so that makes me feel really good. Now other <laughs> always have an opportunity to, to redo a markup or do an enhancement method so that they can see the features more clearly at our office. So, um, but the ones that were provided were to the to the industry were my markup. So I appreciate that very much. No, great.
0: Um, I was just going to comment back on the the you know the the field thinking eight is enough. I, I think you know to an extent there's you know there's all the discussions that was going on. Um, the classes like we were we were talking about that, but I kind of get this feeling that over the past ten fifteen years, one of the things that's changed is just people seeing it for themselves by using aphis yes. like the better the Aphis has yes. gotten, more and more people are seeing things heck it's it's not all that I mean it wouldn't take long doing some searches around the delta to find eight that uh, kind of come close and and then examiners have slowly. Come around in large part because they they've had to s- they've seen it for themselves Go I on. would
2: agree APHIS has definitely increased our knowledge on that and uh, and again to to the credit of your work in the industry on this one it's um, it's really a lot easier to discuss things in an industry once you have a term to give to it mm-hmm. and so while I think a lot of us intuitively knew that uh, common features in a common area carry less weight toward an identification. Uh, we really didn't have a very uh, good term or a clear way to discuss it. So while we may have known it intuitively, sometimes when we can have the right uh, terminology to be able to discuss it openly, it makes it a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the the thing that surprised me too about this case I mean here we are talking about specificity and these close non-match issues what shocked me about this case was that this wasn't an APHIS case and and, and so that as you said dandridge was developed because of a potential connection in this and so the features that are being examined the features um that do somewhat correspond to dandridge are by coincidence but they are in an area pattern forest area low specificity region that that actually is pretty amazing, I mean it's uh, it doesn't sound like Dandridge is a very lucky man, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get more into his history, but it just it sounds like luck was against him
2: yeah there there is a, um there's definitely. Uh, some features in the low specificity areas that do appear to correspond between Dandridge and the crime scene impressions. However, if you do a thorough analysis and a thorough comparison, you can certainly see how once you get outside of that area, the comparison just falls apart. Absolutely. Sure.
0: So uh, you've got, you know, your report closely followed the report from Alabama Bureau of Investigation saying that this identification is incorrect, but Dandridge had exhausted all his appeals, but now there's this new evidence. So how does he finally get his day in court to, to get this all taken care of?
2: Sure. So the attorneys had to file for what's called an evidentiary hearing. So they take our information and they take their research and uh, uh, information that they gleaned from Glenn's doctoral thesis and and other sources that we had pointed them to, and they create this filing with the court, asking the court to listen to the case again. And so the court did approve an evidentiary hearing, and the attorneys end end up back in court a couple different times at the evidentiary hearing. Now, initially when we had uh, compared the prints and we had given the verbal results of an exclusion, we didn't want to issue uh, an exclusion report if we could avoid it. Just because what we've seen in the history of our industry, when there's an incorrect identification, um, that the, the nail in the coffin is to find the correct identification. And we had received the one really poor quality copy of the prints of the son of the victim, the uh, Riley Manning Jr., who had found his father's body, who says in a a statement to the police that he got blood on three fingers of his left hand checking on his father. And we had a poor quality copy of his fingerprint card, but it wasn't... Uh, enough for us to render a, a definitive conclusion. So initially, we had wanted them to pursue better quality copies of the Prince of the son of the victim before we right. issued that first report.
1: I, I got to jump in here. So, I, Matt, th- this is something that Eric and I uh, have, you know, tackled in other episodes, and of course. This debate about what information should examiners have to ask going the same question. In, right. I, I mean, we, we can't we can't leave this alone because, of course, that's biasing information. But yet, it sounds like that is such critical information for at least someone to have when considering this examination. Thoughts about uh, relevance of that information? How useful that was to you guys to find that?
2: Sure. So initially, when we get the case, we get the known prints, we get three copies of the known prints of Alton Dandridge. We got one poor quality copy of the prints of the son of the victim. And initially we saw significant agreement between the left index and the left middle fingers of the son of the the victim, even on the poor quality prints. We had no clue about that police report until after we had issued our verbal results of the exclusion. We found that when they brought over two big cardboard boxes full of case files and we dug and we dug and we read and we read uh, for a long period of time that we actually learned that he had made that statement.
0: Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, but yeah. what, what, what a find to, to come across, though, digging through this box and all of a sudden you what you've already kind of suspected and are just waiting for better quality prints, and all of a sudden you have this, this written description that basically outlines how, if it does end up being an identification to Junior, uh, how that would have happened, and it's been in there the whole time. Yeah, it's like a treasure map with an X on it. Look here. Right,
2: <laughs> well, right. That's, ex- that's exactly right. So as far as the debate of, of timing and and what introduces bias, contextual bias regarding before examinations or After uh, examinations and uh, discussions on sequential unmasking, all of those things, really for us in this particular case, it was a a non-issue. We didn't have access to that information until after we issued our initial exclusion results.
1: But Um, yet still important information. I mean, even if we argue that, you know, okay, we don't want that before the exam starts, it's important for someone to have that information to at least direct the exams to include the, the son as part of the comparison process.
2: Correct. And so we have that information being provided to the Montgomery Police Department in a statement, and we have no indications that that ever made its way to the examiners at the Alabama Bureau of Investigation at the time of the examinations.
0: Bingo. Right. right.
2: right. Uh,
0: so you, you do eventually then report out the uh, exclusion to, uh, to Dandridge.
2: Right. So right. they've got to file this this uh, evidentiary hearing, and we really wanted to get better quality copies of the son of the victim before we reported that out, Uh, see if we could put the nail in the coffin. If that was, in fact, the correct identification, then that would kind of resolve everything, and and those identifications are much more demonstrable. Initially, the ABI, after they found out verbally that we were going to say exclusion, They had come back and said the prints weren't suitable for comparison, not because they had compared them, but because they saw this old memo saying that the prints had faded and were not suitable for rephotography.
0: They haven't actually
2: compared them; they just said they were not of value. So we're getting these two different conflicting results going to the court. So we had to issue the uh, the exclusion report, and we excluded all three of those prints to Mr. Dangeridge. and I had to issue that report in order for it to accompany the filing. So they have to file for this evidentiary hearing. They need a written report from the experts to be able to file that with the court. So we right. did that. They go before the courts. They're before the courts a couple times, and uh, the judge uh, sounds like gets a little bit frustrated with the fact that these experts just can't figure this out. So the judge actually ordered the ABI and us to get together and see if we can just figure this out. Now, before we did that, uh, we actually managed to get, um, the attorneys managed to get us five additional copies of the known fingerprints of the son of the victim. They were being held at the Montgomery Police Department, and initially they weren't going to provide us those prints. But due to some uh, attorney work, they managed to uh, get a court order that they had to provide us with those prints. And obviously, you can imagine the son of the victim thinks that his the Alton Dangeridge killed his father, and he doesn't. He's not going to give us new prints. He wants nothing to do with anything that helps Mister Dangeridge in this case. Oh, oh, that's sad. Yeah. So we got. Uh, what was supposed to be five copies of the known fingerprints of the son of the victim. And in reality, what we got was a moderate copy of the prints of the son of the victim, uh, a poor quality second copy of those same prints. We had a second fingerprint card that was worse than the first one and a poor quality copy of that second fingerprint (laughs) card. And then we got a third fingerprint card that was Really, just a bunch of lines and dots, and the general shape of fingerprints on a fingerprint card. So we had a moderate copy to be able to work with. The big thing about that was that the comparable areas were uh, that we needed for those two latent prints on the wallboard, as well as that third latent print were. Were clearly recorded um, and more completely recorded. Uh, specifically, one of the prints we needed some more detail below the delta and even going down into the joint a little bit, and we were able to get that with that a new set of fingerprints. So, and we uh, still had a court order saying, "Hey, get your experts together and work this out." And so that's how we were allowed the opportunity to reach out to the ABI and say. We we found the correct identification. We're going to issue a report, but as a professional courtesy, we'd like to give you the opportunity to do that first, if you'd like to.
1: Yeah. As a technical question, did you identify them individually or as a simultaneous impression?
2: So L one and L two identifications can stand on their own. L three can't.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Got it. Uh, so how long uh, after all this you know finally makes it into to court? Um, how long does it take for him to uh, to get released from prison?
2: So. It really didn't take very long because the report of the correct identifications is actually issued by the Alabama Bureau of Investigation. The district attorney's office as a result of these evidence, uh, this evidentiary hearing filing is already aware that this is being looked at again. Uh, everything, everybody already kind of had a heads up about this and so it didn't take long at all. Um, by the time we talked with the ABI and he was released, Uh, it was was definitely less than a month. I I don't have those exact dates, but I want to say it was on the the scale of a week or less.
0: So On
2: September 30th is the actual filing of the district attorney's office uh, where they filed a motion asking that the Equal Justice Initiative's petition to vacate the conviction and sentence be granted. And so that's September 30th, and he was released October 1st. Wow.
0: So, uh, I mean, it it obviously took a while to... To get to that point where this petition is is sent in, but then released the next day, that's fantastic. Just as a quick reminder, when did you when did you guys first get contacted and first um, you know look at the, uh, the the actual evidence images in this case?
2: So we got the evidence uh, the very first time on Wednesday, April second of two thousand fourteen, and I started oh, okay. examining that other this afternoon of. That Friday, so uh, that's April second, and I started the examinations. The fourth. Pull it up real quick. You know, I, Friday, April fourth.
1: I remember you mentioning Matt in your presentation that you opened these up on Friday afternoon and went, on oh, no, no, I'm going w- to wait. I'm going to wait until Monday." <laughs> yeah.
2: So the way this actually went was Friday afternoon at about three o'clock in the afternoon, I finished up one case and I thought, well, I have a little bit of time left to say. let me just go ahead and knock this out, I've got, a, I've got a core, I've got delta, I have quite a number of ridges and so I pulled out the images I did a quick analysis of the latent prints and found a target group and went over to the known prints and did a comparison and moved out a few ridges and thought, huh, I, I chose a bad target group because this is just falling apart so right. I chose another target group and worked my way out from there, and it fell apart. I did that three times, and and then I decided this is not a Friday yep. at three o'clock comparison. <laughs> I need to come back Monday That's after a weekend with fresh eyes and look at this again.
1: Yeah,
0: right. so true and so so real. Going back to that that petition, it, you know, it only takes a day to, for him to be released, but this is you know a year and a half of work leading up to. Leading all the way up to uh, finally having that petition complete with everyone in agreement and everyone ready to uh, to agree that that these are uh, erroneous IDs and he needs to be released. I guess it sounds quick, but, um, you know, from Danders' perspective, you know, it, it still took a year and a half leading up to... Uh, 20, to get, 20 well, years. 20 years, yes, but um, from, from this... Yeah initial kind of day of a fingerprint expert finally, um, qu- well, I guess these are the initial ones, but, you know, questioning this and being able to then take it into court, it's still a year and a half lead up to actually, uh, you know, get everything filed and, and, uh, and in
2: properly. Which, in in to be perfectly honest, in post-conviction case work, unfortunately, a year and a half <sighs> is, is not unheard of by any means. Also. Right,
1: right. So now that uh, Dandridge is released, uh does he go to Disneyland? What's uh what's what's his story and what's the coda here?
2: Sure. So Dandridge is released uh October first, twenty fifteen. He had twenty years in prison. Uh shortly after his release and well I say shortly, but the next year, he actually came down and presented with his attorneys at the National Latin Latent Print Examiner Academy. And I had an opportunity to ask him a series of questions. The students at the academy had an opportunity to examine the prints prior to actually meeting him. So wow. they weren't given the case information. They were just given the prints as though they were complex comparisons. And uh, and so then they had to see the faces that corresponded with those conclusions. How did that
0: work out? Um, with, with I mean, these, are these, are, these are, are these new trainees or is this a more experienced examiner? These are.
2: These there's some that have some thin print experience, but most of the examiners coming into the National Latent Print Examiner Academy, they are new examiners looking to get through a training program in an accelerated format. We've got that nailed down to about 20 weeks, and so you come down to Mississippi for five months of your life um, <laughs> to be trained. Right? Four? I say I would say 40 hours a week, but there's homework. Even midnight. more, so it's it's a very intensive academy.
0: i was really curious, but how'd they do uh, with these with these comparisons? Uh,
2: a large number of inconclusives. Okay, uh, that's that's probably not a surprise. Some of them got it right, uh, but then a, a large number of inconclusives. And you could imagine after after never looking at a latent print to 20 weeks later, what are you going to do on these types of prints? No, I understand. I'm happy to see them. Uh, Not that an inconclusive is always a punt, but in this format I'm happy to see them not make an incorrect identification um, and to just recognize that it's beyond their skill level. So that's good. That's a good place for them to be. So he presents at the, the academy. The students have opportunities to take selfies with him. Um, eventually, just as a matter of formality, we're an accredited laboratory, so I have to issue a formal report. So I do, I issue the formal report of the identifications of L1, L3 to Riley Manning, Jr., who's the son of the victim who found his father and is not associated with his father's murder by any way. But Mr. Dinkridge really lost quite a bit. You can imagine not just 20 years of your life, but when he was arrested, he had a son named Michael who was three years old at the time mm-hmm. of his arrest. Wow. And he was in a, a non-formalized common law marriage, and after being sentenced to prison, uh, Mr. Dandridge and his son's mother lost touch. Uh, and then while he's in prison, uh, his son's mother, so Michael's mother, dies and he is raised by his maternal grandparents, so Michael's mother's parents, his maternal grandparents. So Michael, uh, Mr. Danger said that Michael pretty regularly visited him in prison until he was about 16. And then Mr. Danger said he just kind of became busy with his own life. Um, when Mr. Danger's was released, Michael was 24 years old. Uh, Michael actually didn't attend his father's release because he had to work at his job at Taco Bell. So... That can just say whatever it says. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Dandridge was a painter prior to his conviction, and while he was in prison, he suffered from diabetes that was really pretty poorly managed. So when he got out, he had some diabetic neuropathy in his hands. Mm. And when I talked with him about his current work, because he got right back to work after he got out of prison, um, he said that he was really having a lot of difficulty painting. He said that he would have to watch his hand to make sure that it still had the paintbrush in it. Wow, and He was trying to paint. So pretty, pretty bad situation there. Um, I think a lot of people would think that he got out and, and sued everybody and came out with millions and millions of dollars. but when he was released, he, he had a, in the range of $500 uh, to his name when he was released and that was because he did leather works while he was in prison and he sold those. So he had a little bit of money when he was released. Um but, uh, Mr. Bainbridge, when you talk with him, he just talked about forgiveness. Uh, he just wanted to, he said forgiveness is for, um, for yourself, for the person who's doing the forgiven, not giving, not the, the people who are being forgiven. Uh, and he didn't want to sue the ABI. He didn't want to sue the examiners. Um, there were a couple of, of, uh, legal things that happened in particular with the jailhouse informant, um, that, that were pretty, wrong. right? And he didn't even want to sue the prosecutor's office for some of those things that had been done. He just wanted to forgive everybody and move on. So the state of Alabama has a wrongful conviction compensation law, and he was going to pursue that, and he was content with that. That's all he wanted to do.
1: Do you know what that is? In a lot of states, it's often like 100000 per year or something like that. Oh.
2: Not quite in Alabama. So there's a few requirements for Alabama's wrongful conviction compensation law. First of all, you have to be determined to be truly innocent of the crime, not just an overturned conviction. It can't be any type of a technicality, overturned conviction, right. or even, hey, you, you, we don't. The the evidence has fallen apart, and we don't have enough for the conviction to stand today. Right. But you may still right. have done it. So you you truly have to be determined to be innocent. And Mr. Danger's case was found to meet that criteria. Alabama law has, allows for up to a maximum of $50,000 per year of uh-huh. wrongful uh, incarceration. So his, his compensation stood to be in the range of a million dollars. But there's this little caveat in the statute for their wrongful conviction compensation law, and it says subject to legislative approval. So he made it past the first hurdle and it was actually scheduled to be discussed in the legislative session. So in the last few weeks of the legislative session, Mr. Dandridge's case was going to be discussed. Um, But instead, the uh, Alabama governor at the time was caught having an affair with a former aide, and the legislators spent the last few weeks dealing with the governor's affair and his attempted cover-up instead of Mr. Dandridge's compensation. Politics as usual. (laughs) And so... Uh, it was it was slated to be discussed the next legislative session. It just got held over for the next legislative session. Mm. But unfortunately, Mr. Dandridge died before that could happen. On January 26, uh, 2017, at about 12.45 in the afternoon, Mr. Dandridge was driving down the road, and there was some debris in the road. He pulled over to remove the debris from the road, and he was struck by a vehicle. He was struck by a Volkswagen Jetta. And he died. Uh, he was wow. free a total of one year, three months, and 26 days prior to his death. Wow. I'm that's... going
1: back to my previous statement of this is not a lucky man. Wow.
2: This is a, this is a horrible set of circumstances to happen to anybody. For
0: sure. I mean, just trying to help out uh, I mean, after 20 years in jail. Wow. Pulling over to try to help out and get some trash out of the road or, you know, so, that's just terrible. Seriously, what the hell? That is
2: crazy. There's still the question, um, and I have yet to receive an answer back from the attorneys on this. They didn't sound very hopeful. That you could imagine, had had this been discussed at the legislature, had it been approved, Mr. Dangeridge may have had his million dollars or so, and then that could have been uh, passed down to his yes, son upon absolutely. his death. And last time I talked to the attorneys, they were not hopeful for any type of post-death compensation in this regard. So well, uh, that, that that is not shameful happen for him or for his son who lost his father for the vast majority of his youth.
1: That, and that's terrible. This is where the state of Alabama really could could step up here.
2: Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. I, I don't know that it's a done deal, um, but last time I talked to the attorneys, and it's been a few months since I talked to them. That was Man. that was their last thought that that was probably not going to happen.
0: I mean, it's been a year and a half since his death, so uh, you know that's that's at least one, if not more, legislative sessions. So yeah, yeah, that's that's wow. just sad, really sad. Well, on
1: on at least a positive note, I mean, you guys were involved and integral in clearing his name and you know, find you know, helping to establish his innocence. And you know, good on you guys for uh, for being able to do that.
2: Well, it was absolutely our pleasure to get to work on the case, and and uh, he truly was a really good man. Um, like I said before, he just spoke about forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. You've got to forgive people. He was happy. He was happy to be free. Uh, He went right back to work and was working hard every day. He did have a little bit of time to reconnect with his family. He had a brother, he had a sister, and of course his son. In fact, the day he died, he had been over at his brother's house helping him work on his house, and he was driving home from that when he was hit by that vehicle. But he had bought a a little house, a two-bedroom, one-bath house in the middle of a cotton field in Alabama. and just seemed to be really happy and and like I said, he every time I talked with him, he just talked about forgiveness
1: and and so you know again, it's such a such a tragic ending to this, and you talk about what a great man he was. It's also my understanding that rsNA um, did this as pro bono, given all the work that was put into this. Can you talk about that a little bit too?
2: Sure, so when we first found out that the case was even going to be coming in, if you know Ron Smith's work history, you'd know that he used to work at the Alabama Bureau of Investigation. In fact, he had worked with uh, the people who had made the incorrect identifications. And so we needed to, in any post-conviction case, you need to avoid uh, any conflict of interest and any, any thoughts of bias one way or the other, and certainly even more so in this case. So before we ever even got uh, this case in the office Ron directed that we would work this case but it was going to be worked entirely free of charge so the entire case was worked pro bono that added up to about 235 hours of combined analyst time between the exclusion and the correct identifications and the work with the attorneys and the work with uh, the ABI
1: that's fantastic and good on Ron and you guys for being able to do that you know what? A, again what a service uh, to the state of Alabama and to you know proving his innocence not that you would have known that going into it but again you know uh really a a credit i want to thank you for that service well thank you it was absolutely our pleasure
0: yeah so um you know absolutely thank you matt for uh for coming on the show with us here we're going to uh continue this discussion on um another episode we're going to record next um Talking more about the details in the images themselves and uh, figure out how best to convey all that. Maybe podcast isn't the best format for a, such a visual thing, but if, uh, if anyone has any questions about this case, uh, can they contact you about it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So my email address is M. Marvin, so that's M M A R V as in Victor I N, the little at symbol, Ron Smith and Associates.com. You can always reach our main office number. That's 601-626-1100. And then we have made a decision as a company in order to assist the industry as best we can. Uh, we are not uh, holding these images to ourselves by any means. We're happy to share them. We want people to see them. We want them to have an opportunity to work through them. So we have some high-quality, high-resolution images of the latent prints, the known prints, and we're happy to share those. If anyone wants to just shoot me an email or give me a phone call, I'll be happy to send those out.
0: That's fantastic.
2: As we wrap things up here, Matt, is
1: there any uh, any upcoming courses or thing uh, academies that uh, listeners might be interested in?
2: Oh, absolutely. Ron Ron Smith & Associates, we offer a lot of training all around the world at any given point in time, and please check our website. That's www.ronsmithandassociates.com for our latest listing. Glenn, of course, is an instructor with us, travels all around the world uh, teaching for us, and it's always a pleasure to Uh, go to his classes. If you you get that opportunity, I highly recommend it. He's going to be talking about things that were very relevant in this case. He's going to be talking about things like connective ambiguity. He's going to be talking about things like pattern forced areas and the weight that should be given to features in areas such as deltas and just a a great class that can help prepare you for the time cases like this do come across your desk.
0: Uh, Eric, as well,
2: also teaches a class. I've had the opportunity to take his exclusion class on Online And certainly, I think that you can go to Eric's website, and I'm sure he'll tell you about that for where you can see his class listings as well. Um, but in addition, Ron Smith & Associates, we uh, run the National Latent Print Examiner Academy. We're going to be having our fourth session coming up October 1st, 2018 through March 1st, 2019. That's 20 weeks of training uh, down in uh, Mississippi. It's held here in our hometown uh, by our headquarters office. And uh, just top-notch training, and it's an accelerated training program where we cover 20 week in, Excuse me, where we cover in 20 weeks an entire training program, and send examiners that are ready for supervised casework back to their agencies. And we actually have a number of students who pay for themselves to go through the academy, um, once they have their bachelor's degree, trying to uh, get into the industry. So that's another route to get into the industry. And we, of course, I. Um, I'm happy for people to take that. We're always uh, excited to see students enroll for that. I teach five weeks of that academy. Our lab director also teaches five weeks of that 20-week academy. You get to do uh, hands-on training side-by-side with Ron Smith himself as well as <laughs> of our full-time examiners. So uh, it's a great opportunity. If you never have had a chance to sit down side-by-side with Ron and work through cases, you'll have that opportunity at our academy.
1: Fantastic.
0: Uh, so, if uh, any listeners out there have questions for me or Glenn, uh, Eric at RayForensics dot com or Glenn at g l e n n at Services dot com and I just want to uh, put
1: a plug in too for some upcoming class or a- an upcoming class uh, I'll be teaching in Calgary in Canada for our Canadian listeners or American listeners I want to go up to Calgary in November uh, November 12th <laughs> through the 16th uh, 12th through 16th I'm teaching through RSNA I'm teaching the advanced ace V applications class up there and uh, actually hope to be adding some uh, more classes here in the fall and early 2019 so go to com uh,
0: to see what training opportunities are available and other classes that they offer as well. And uh, for the exclusionology class I teach, um, I've got some interest, it seems like, in like Ohio or Florida, but still looking for a, uh, a host agency. So if you're interested in exclusionology, especially if you're in those areas, but really anywhere, um, uh, please give me an email. Let me know... Um, uh, you know some dates that uh, that might work out to go uh, teach that. Uh, remember, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not any other agency. You can listen to us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on iTunes. Uh, and with that, uh, we'll talk to you guys remember next time. Remember to
1: rate us. Oh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Ra- yeah. Go on, go on iTunes and give us those five stars. Um, uh, and absolutely check out that uh, Patreon page, too. So uh, thanks, Glenn, for the reminder. Um, And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.